and welcome to episode 218, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and or Barry. Yeah, just in case, Barry, you know, just and or Barry. Uh, here on episode 218, a fine, fine podcast coming towards you, amongst other things, Barry. <clears throat> Are you there? Hello, Barry. Hello? 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 Oh, that's on the Patreon. Oh, I'm sorry. So, we are going to offer up. I can't believe we've never done this match before, Barry, but after 218 episodes, we will finally, finally, Barry, oh, we're going to Mempho, and we are going April 27th, 1987. Strap yourself in. It's hair versus hair inside a steel cage. Austin Idol takes on the King Jerry Lawler. He's got Paul E. Dangerously, I I think is how he says his name. It's not dangerously yet. and. Maybe somebody else that's involved. I don't know, Barry. I'm just going to speculate. And uh, a white-hot crowd in Memphis. And let's see what else we got. Oh, Barry's a uh, little road trip that he recently took. I'm going to be telling a dog story that I had to do with. Oh, my God. 1030 on a stinking Saturday night. That was quite an adventure. Not my dogs, fortunately. Uh, let's see what else. Among other things, I tell you what, Barry. You know where always a good place to talk? Let's talk about the ladies. Do you have an objection to that? No, if we're discussing women, I'm Jeff, I will sit back and learn. I'll learn from the master. Well, we've broken kayfabe. Yes, Barry Rose is, in fact, a heterosexual. So, <laughs> that being said, something posted recently in the group area, and I thought it would be ripe for discussion. Barry, of course, the all-time classic. That's in uh, quotations there because it's really not. Urban Cowboy. Barry, the question was posed. You've seen Urban Cowboy, correct? Oh, uh, not as many times as you have, but, well, but multiple times. Thing. Are you a city guy? Oh, that didn't come out right. Are you a <laughs> si- <laughs> Are you a guy that favors sissy, or are you a guy that favors Pam? I can so, just see the hate mail coming now, Barry. Yeah, so Sweet Lou, if you can isolate that, are you a <laughs> sissy guy? And we can just play that now every episode. I think that was your gimmick in uh, Ring of Honor, <laughs> exactly. wasn't it? It's when I was teaming with Adrian Street in 83, exactly. I was, was yeah, yeah. So, so sissy was that was Deborah Winger. So I'll say that. So I'm 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 a Pam guy. But adding to that, Madeline I, Smith, lovely the, woman. Oh, sh- stunning, right? Just yeah. absolutely a stunning woman. I like sissy's at I me mean, at least from the movie. Sissy's attitude, I think I liked better. She had much more of a personality. But that other woman, stunningly beautiful. So I would say I'm going with Pam on this one. I will say, first of all, two good choices. It was an excellent question. I think if you're going, if you're looking at the long play, you know, long term, uh, Pam is the obvious answer. Uh, knockout, drop dead gorgeous. Daddy's got money. Daddy's into oil, as Pam says That's in the right. movie. But if you're going for a one night, I've had a few cocktails in the local bar and looking for some fun, I think you're going sissy on a one night basis or maybe a nice uh, long weekend. But uh, long term, it doesn't seem as good an investment, Barry. What do you think of that? Yeah, it, well, that's it. So I, maybe if you're looking marriage, uh, but you know what? I, uh, I don't. Regardless, I don't care about. I'm going with Pam because not only is she smoking hot and knows how to dance, but well, I am. But but the money aspect as well. So yeah, I would absolutely go with her. So Barry, let's talk about the other night AEW 
Are you a sissy me? guy? I'm still fucking laughing. You're, you're still laughing good. about that. Thank yes. you very much. I, I can uh, I can see the hate emails coming in. <laughs> I'm going to be shamed. It's going to be the woke generations coming after me hard. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about AEW. The CM Punk and uh, M- MJF stuff just keeps getting better, Barry. So it, it is sad that there are groups of people out there that will shit on this regardless that you're seeing. And it, it baffles me. And I, I, for the life of me, I, I don't know if because somebody maybe prominent, maybe a prominent figure hates AEW, or maybe you're a loyalist to the WWE, which really makes no sense to me because, look, I like pizza, but I would eat at pizza restaurants all across the country, right? I'm not going to just go to one. So it doesn't make any sense. Their promo work, and especially MJF. I mean, let, let's, let's talk about that for a second. CM Punk a decade ago, maybe top three promos in the business. It may be top five. I don't know. At this stage, who is better than MJF as far as cutting a promo? Who, who out there is better right now? Is there anyone? And what's, what's best about him is his promos just cut right to the bone. You know, the, the thing about how he said CM stood for crystal meth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That yeah. was brutal. And, yeah, he, he's just uh, – He's cutting real close to the bone, and it makes the makes the program more interesting. It it absolutely does too, and and you'd have to think. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is being run by CM Punk, and uh, but the fact that he's actually agreeing to it, but it does it gives an air of realism to it. It's not two guys cutting standard promos that we've seen for the last sixty years. This is unique, you know. And how often do you get promos where you say, "Wow, this is really unusual and unique." doesn't happen that often. And I would say the last time I saw it was CM Punk and Eddie Kingston, maybe just a month ago, right? Yeah. But what we're getting now with MJF, and again, there is no promo guy that is better in this business currently. If he doesn't win Heel of the Year in the Observer Awards, uh, I'm going to try to figure out what the hell's going on because he's just been, you know, I will say his in-ring work is not nearly as great as his promos. But he's so good on the promos that you really don't care, you know, and, and so he just he just lights a fire under people. And you've said it before, when the chords to his intro song start playing, people just lose their mind, you know, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see next week. They're going to be on Long Island to see what kind of reaction he gets from the <clears throat> the hometown crew there. Now, next, Barry, let me talk to you. Let's discuss the uh, the match with Cody and Andrade El Idolo. The flaming table spot, Barry, what did you think? So I didn't hate it. A lot of people, a lot of hate out there. I, I haven't read anything that I think is positive for the flaming table spot. The only thing I would say is I, I don't think we needed Brandy to come out and do Hello. That. that. That That's the issue. The only way I could excuse this, which is what I'm hoping for, is that this is all going to lead to the Cody heel turn. Because the, Cody's going to be a great heel. He's already hated. Yes, no, be that's easy. fair. And Brandy is going to be a, as hated as anybody could be. If they don't turn him heel, then, in my opinion, this was just another ego boost for Brandy and Cody and the Rhodes family. I didn't hate the match. Look, a lot of, a lot of people are complaining about it. I would say I don't know if it's the smartest thing to do, but AEW's done this with the Nick Gage stuff and, you know, with, with Jericho and God knows Cody did with the uh, the lashes from MJF a year or two back uh, with those huge welts on his back. So it shouldn't have been on. It should have been a pay-per-view is what I'm thinking, as opposed to being on television. 
at the same time, I did not hate it as much as everybody else did at all. So I didn't have as much of a problem with the match itself. The, the match itself was, was a good, solid brawl. Here's a couple of complaints that I had before I get to the big complaint. The problem that I had is it always makes me crazy when you're doing some sort of gimmick match, a street fight or whatever, and you come out and you look like you're going out to lead an orchestra somewhere, you know? Like, come on, dude, put on some friggin' cowboy boots and a pair of jeans and make it, you know, have your fist taped up because this is going to be a by God street fight. Don't come out looking like you're a band director, you know, and that I had a problem with the match itself. I did not have a problem with. There was some good, solid stuff. I like the stuff where he goes in under the under the uh, ring and he's pulling out the different gimmicks. Uh, No, I don't think I'm going to take that. That was kind of cute, but it didn't take away from the quality of the match. However. Let's talk about the finish of the match and where I did have a problem. And no, for those of you who think I'm just going to completely shit on this because of Brandy's involvement, that is not the case. What I did have a problem with was the finish of the match. I felt like somebody missed a cue somewhere. And what happened? And I mean, it's live television. What are you going to do? But Cody gets him up on the top rope to do the table spot. And he turns around to look and it's like, Oh, there's Brandy who, you know, had come down to the end. I don't know if she was late on her spot. If they went to the table spot too early, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quantify it with that because, you know, if it wasn't her fault, I don't want her to get the heat for it, but uh, not that she's ever going to get any heat on that show. But once they did it and she took forever to put the damn lighter fluid on there, she's, you know, she, she sets the table on fire, you know, I will say you're absolutely right, Barry, that Cody has certainly put himself. He did the, you know, God, he did the spot off the top of the cage. He took, he got the shots with the belt to the back. He's definitely given his his body up for the company. You can't, you can't deny him that. And he gets all credit for that. We can bitch about a lot of other things about Cody. and, And I think they're, they're fair, but giving the devil his due, the guy definitely goes out there and, and works his ass off and stuff. I have made it abundantly clear. I'm not a huge Cody fan, especially in the role he's in now, but I give him credit for going out there and putting his ass on the line, you know, giving it, you know, giving his body up for the different spots. Kudos to him for that. I wasn't a big fan of, first of all, the the burning table spot, I don't think was necessary as a finish to the match. What what do you think about that before I continue? I mean, as much as it didn't bother me, it it was it was pointless. I would agree okay. with that. Yeah. So, you know, because I look at it this way, like if you're a sponsor of the program, okay, on TNT, let's just say uh, I'm going to pick out, like say you're Domino's. Okay. I'm just, I don't know why that came to my head, but you're like a corporate sponsor. And so your corporate board is watching this show. Oh, Hey, we're, uh, we're going to watch the show because we just signed a new deal to be a sponsor. Uh, and as I'm telling this story, of course, there's an ad for Domino in the background on my TV set. Well, so I guess I picked the right one. But um, so you're watching this show and you're thinking, okay, uh, we're going to appeal to our younger audience because, you know, this wrestling is, you know, it comes off kind of cool and stuff like that. And then you'll see a spot where they light a table on fire and a guy puts another guy through a table that's on fire from a corporate standpoint. And I'm not talking from a wrestling standpoint or wrestling fan standpoint. I'm talking from a corporate standpoint. 
if I was one of those corporate suits at Domino's and this, you know, little uh, theory I got here, I'd be going, what the fuck are we watching? What, what is this? Why are we, why are we sponsoring these guys? This is a horrible look. I mean, am I completely off base here, Bear? No, it, 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 I look, I felt the same. I felt even stronger with the Nick Gage match against Chris Jericho that yes, that shouldn't have been yeah. on, uh, on television. I don't think, and look, this is where the Tony Khan hate will come from, but I, I don't think he's as worried about a lot of that stuff. I, you know, knowing no, that and that's a fair point, funds, but yeah, he, yeah, he should think, be though. I mean, you, to your point, he should be worried about it, but I think he's looking at it going, look, I've got billions of dollars at my fingertips. If somebody wants to pull out, that's fine. But I always, you know, for me, Jeff, when I look at professional wrestling, I always look at it in two different, two different ways. The first is I look at it as a fan. What do I want to see? The second aspect is I look at it as a business. Is the product you're putting out there going to make me tune in next week? Is it going to make me buy your pay-per-view? Is it going to make me run out and buy your merchandise? And I'm not sure the flaming table spot or the Nick Gage thing did any of that. Yeah, no, and that's fair. And, you know, of course, t- uh, Cody got color. And to me, it came off like, uh, what do you call one of those garbage matches, you know, instead of a good solid street fight brawl that let's just say, you know, eh, I don't care. Cody pulls a gimmick out of his tights and boom, takes care of Andrade, who's been, you know, giving him all these problems for like the last few weeks. Uh, you know, it's some kind of bullshit like that. I don't care. But when you do a spot that is used on, you know, gimmick shows like, uh, the, um, the one in Cal, what's the one in California that we talked about, uh, that was on the uh, dark side. Oh, uh, shit. The the Rob black XPW. Thank you. It came off. Appreciate it. Luke came off looking like the kind of match you would have seen on an XPW show. And I definitely don't mean that as a compliment. The bout itself was fine. Very solid match, but the finish was XPW and Tony Khan does not want to be compared to, uh, you know, Rob Black, I don't think. I don't think and, so. And, no, yeah. no I, I mean, strictly from a wrestling standpoint. Oh, the porn yeah. aspect is fine is what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. okay, that's okay. Let's clarify but, that, Jeff. But Thank I, you. I think, you know, uh, you're right about the fact that Tony Khan financially does not have to worry about this. But, you know, my point is, at some point, Tony Khan, not the owner of Tony Khan, the booker, needs to be able to say to whether it's Cody, uh, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, the guys that are, you know, they got his ear. He needs to be able to say, yeah, no, you know, it's like, it's like being a responsible parent at some point to your kids, you have to say no. And Tony Khan needs to learn to say no. So my gut tells me that is on its way and he's going to need a right. He doesn't need a committee of right-hand men. He needs a right-hand man. And it's not going to be somebody who is currently in the ring because we all know if you're pushing yourself, you know, and Cody's a a prime example, Cody's entrance is so dramatic. Uh, You know, when you watch it, 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 to me, it says it's like an entrance, almost that Ric Flair would have with the music. It would be fine if he was a, if it was heel Cody. Absolutely. But when you're, when you're selling yourself, when, and look again, I, all the Cody hate to me is sometimes ridiculous, but I get it to me. He's a middle of the card guy. And that's not an, even a knock on Cody. That's just knowing the placement of where a guy should be. Right. So Cody's a middle of the card guy, but he tre- he's been treating himself for the last couple of years as this super main event talent. And obviously the fans are not adjusting to that. They don't want that. 
they're seeing Cody. That's why they, they're all turning on him. So I would say he's got to turn fairly quick. It's got to happen within the next month. If it doesn't, this there's irreparable damage that could be done. And you're 100% correct, Jeff. Check. Tony Khan needs to step in. Tony Khan needs to, he needs to run the show, but he needs the advice of people, but not the advice of people that are trying to get themselves over. Exactly. And, and did you notice one spot? And even though the taping took a place in uh, Duluth, which by the way is uh, the building literally right next door to where my wife works. <laughs> so, oh, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, because it's the arena for the Atlanta gladiators, which is a uh, minor league hockey team. So what I, what I thought was interesting, uh, and I don't know if you noticed this part, the belt thrown into the crowd spot that Cody's been doing. Yeah. Did you notice they had Andrade throw the belt into the crowd? I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, the people it, were actually booing because the person wouldn't throw the belt back. Exactly. That, they, uh, yeah. that should begin to tell them all they need to know. So let me ask you a question. And, and somebody uh, mentioned this last week, and it may have even been on the actual broadcast, but. You know, throwing the belt out into the crowd is one thing and then throwing the belt back into the ring. But, you know, if that belt hits somebody in the eye, especially somebody, if it's coming from the crowd back into the ring where it may not be expected, that's potential lawsuit right there. That just doesn't yeah. well, or, if, or if you throw the belt into the crowd and it hits a little kid. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, like what's mom, mom and dad are going to go. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, we, we got a nice gimmick along with the black eye, uh, you know. If you're or lucky, you it's only a black yeah, guy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then you're owning the Jaguars at that point, right? Exactly. So very, very quickly, uh, we saw the other day, and, and I read a very, very nice obituary in The Observer. We lost wrestling legend Pat Barrett, former WWF uh, tag team champion, I believe, uh, and a guy that I believe also spent some time in CWF. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Pat Barrett's time in championship wrestling from Florida? Yeah, and I was really bummed too when I uh, when I I think the news broke late last week. We were actually recording, and you had reached out and said, "Did you hear that Barrett had passed away?" And I hadn't heard it, and so he represents for me, Jeff. I think when wrestling was still pure for me, so I I go back to professional wrestling, and it was somewhere around October of 1975 when professional wrestling changed. And the reason I say that is. I'd been going to wrestling since 1971 and I was just a kid, right? I was seven, eight years old and, uh, I would go back to school, you know, this is elementary school and then going into middle school. And of course, all the kids who were not wrestling fans would tell me how fake and phony it was. And I would, Wait a minute, what? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. I would stand on my Hill Jeff and defend it. There were fistfights that occurred little skinny, Froed out Barry Rose defending professional wrestling to the non-believers. Did you put any of the kids in the Shinonomaki? I can tell you that I flipped a couple of kids with a hip deal that I saw Billy Robinson do. And I can tell you this one kid gave me the look like, what the fuck was that? Right? So was, <laughs> that I remember. But but that was, look, if you're a wrestling fan, we, 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 we've talked about this. I think we this was on the last episode we may have actually spoken about it. But you're a wrestling fan growing up, there becomes, you know, a point where you're defending your love of wrestling. And as I got older, I just was like, you don't like it? Good, good for you. And I walk away. But as a kid, you know, you have to defend it, right? So this was a, a big period. And I will tell you, it was a match that I saw between the mass superstars that were Jerry Lawler and Don Green, managed by Sam Bass. These really Tennessee guys had come down to Florida. 
the Mass Superstars versus Cyclone and Omar Negro. Sam Bass takes off his cowboy boot, nails Omar Negro in the head, and Omar rubs this little white thing across his forehead several times. He's about a foot off the mat, does it right in front of ringside, and then starts to bleed. And I got to tell you, it's akin to telling a child, a small child, that Santa Claus doesn't exist, the tooth fairy, that all of it's fake. And that's exactly what my reaction was. And I always go back to that as the day when I viewed wrestling differently. And it took me a little while to get over that. That wasn't something I got over quickly. However, prior to that, I call my virgin stage of professional wrestling. And Pat Barrett fits right into that, Jeff. And he was in Florida in spring into the summer of 1975. And it was a glorious time in wrestling. And it was a time that in CWF had gone through all these changes one of your favorites, and really a favorite of a lot of people back in those days, Bobby Shane. And Bobby Shane had passed away in, in a plane crash in the state of Florida. And Bobby Shane was brought in to be the booker and a top-level talent. With him, obviously, was uh, Austin Idol, Iron Mike McCord, Gary Hart, and it, it was and Buddy Colt. And Buddy Colt's in-ring career was you know, gone. Uh, Hart had horrible injuries that it took him a while to recover from. And Austin Idol, too on the shelf for about a year, maybe even a little bit longer, a year and a half. So it was a devastating plane crash. And uh, I think it's arguably, you know, if CWF has dark days, that would be one of the darkest days. But where this really facilitates and changes everything is that uh, with Bobby Shane no longer the booker, they had to do something quickly and on the fly. And Dusty Rhodes hadn't been given the book yet. He was still you know, maybe 10 months, nine months into his babyface run. So I don't think Eddie was viewing him as a booker yet. So he reached out to a former NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, which was Harley Race. And Harley came in, and in my opinion, Harley knocked it out of the park. For a young kid, you know, I got to tell you, I look back at it, and Harley's run as a booker coincides with, I think, what is my favorite period of CWF that really you know, 1975 was just an incredible year. And Pat Barrett was a guy that came in and we had a great, great group of guys working in the undercard. And that's where Barrett was. Barrett didn't get any main, main event push in working with us. It was, you know, first, second, usually not first, I should say it was second, third, fourth, fifth match on the card was doing jobs for the bigger names, but he was getting wins over the prelim guys. And they were kind of saving him on TV. He wasn't doing a lot of jobs on TV or anything like that. But he, he was a uh, was a really solid worker. He was the kind of guy that, A, you know, they always said Irish Pat Barrett. And uh, he would come out and he wore a kilt. Uh, I had a chance to read the Observer bio and the Observer obituary on Pat Barrett. And it was interesting, I guess, that Barrett is credited as being the first guy in this country to wear the kilt, which I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the first that I think I remember, uh, there was a guy named Dr. Timothy Geohagen. And uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but that guy may have actually worn a kilt. But Barrett was a guy that, you know, he I think he deserved better in Florida. He was one of those guys, much like a Raul Mata, that I always felt should have gotten a bigger push and more should have been done with him. But at the same time, you were loaded with so much talent that I understood that. So it was only around, give or take, for six months. I, I believe he had been around briefly in the 1960s, but extremely briefly. Not a Florida guy by any stretch, but at the same, same time, he was a guy that I think knew how to work the crowd. 
in reading the obituary from Meltzer, I didn't realize he had been around for so many years. So we were seeing a very, guy. A, a very varied career as far as uh, the number of promotions that he worked in. Really varied. And I, I didn't have any idea when I read that. I will tell you, Meltzer does reference his book and it's not everybody down here or everybody down here hates me or something like that. I forget exactly what the title is. And that is, I think, the second wrestling book that I ever read. And it's a weird book, Jeff. And it's a weird book because it's 50% breaking kayfabe, <clears throat> breaking kayfabe. <clears throat> and the other 50%, it's written in kayfabe. So it almost, at, at times you read it and you're like, you know, why are you kayfabing me on this when you just broke kayfabe a chapter earlier? And it almost doesn't make sense. I can tell you he tells this great, which I've referenced this story he tells a great story about he and Danny Hodge in Mexico, where Danny has an open wound that Pat, I guess, correlates to a woman's genitals, which would be the nicest way to say that. And uh, but genitalia I, would genitalia, be genitalia. But it, but he goes for the he goes for the the street vernacular of the vagina, Jeff. So he's not. Oh. He okay, goes uh, to, exact to that one is the one he goes for. Uh, Benji, Kiaze, Fiazabe on Antonio. Uh, absolutely with this, but it's all in the book. If you want to, if you want to see the word, it's all there. If you want to see the word, it's ah, all there. I saw what you did there. Uh huh. Which was an accident, but yeah, then I'm going to play it up. The, the the second aspect, so he references the story about Peter and Leah Maivia, and Dave's take on it, which I thought was interesting. Jeff was that he said it wasn't a flattering story, and that. Even though he considered himself friends, I guess there were some people that were upset with him for telling the story. So the story's in the book. Why don't I relate the story to everybody, right, Jeff? We have oh, no please. It's story action. time with Uncle Barry. Go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. So, okay, everybody on my knee. Come on. Everybody right here. All right. Now that everybody's comfortable. So apparently, Pat was working out in San Francisco and was friendly with the Maivia family, which normal occurrence. And Peter Maivia was known for a couple of things besides professional wrestling and being a hard ass. One was he liked to drink. He was, uh, had a strong constitution, loved to consume his alcohol. The second was he loved the ladies regardless of being married. So I guess there was this one particular female and Peter had been seeing her and Mrs. Maivia, Leah Maivia, the late Leah Maivia found out about it. So if you know anything about Leah Maivia, if you have read any stories, trouble have, brewing, trouble brewing, not a person to fuck with <laughs> male, female or otherwise, this is, she not was a, a shooter. She was a shooter. She was, a, and look, Peter Maivia, arguably one of the toughest guys in the face of the earth at the time, from my understanding, but very afraid of his wife and wasn't going to, uh, he wasn't going to do anything to try to upset that cart. Anyways, Mrs. Maivia finds out, I believe Peter returns home and she's chasing him down the street. I think she's wielding some sort of club or something like this. And Peter's running down the street. And I believe that was the crux of the story was that, you know, it, when she found out, she went looking for Peter and Peter, he went a running because he was scared. So I always thought that was a, an interesting story. The other story, which I think they referenced briefly was the Billy Robinson story. So let me tell you about this one if you don't know about it. And then I'll tell you exactly where I kind of fit into this in a bizarre way. So I believe it was a tour of Australia and Billy Robinson and Peter Maivia were both on the tour. And Billy Robinson, favorite wrestler of all time, but I've also acknowledged Jeff, there was an edge to the guy. And apparently he had no problem 
in telling people that he was super tough and that he was tougher than you. And if you wanted to fuck with him, he would take you down. So apparently there was alcohol consumed. He and Peter are around. Billy's talking about how he can take anybody. And Peter says, I don't think you can take me. And of course, I'm paraphrasing there, right? So they get into some sort of scrap. Something happens. Billy goes for some sort of a of a hold. And Peter decides to fish hook the eye. So apparently Peter does fish hook the eye, gets the eye out. The eye pops out. If you've ever seen photos of Billy Robinson later in life, you can see that one of his eyes is either a fake eye or it, it, it's a summer eye where it's, you know, going in this direction and that direction. His eyes don't match up. I remember reading years later that they had actually made peace with each other. You know, I don't I don't know what that means, but. They had a big altercation that resulted in my via getting the best of Robinson and basically fish hooking the eye. So let's flash to uh, 1976. And I am currently the Mark president, complete Mark, much like I am today, of the president of the Rocky Johnson fan club. So Rocky leaves the state of Florida, meaning, okay, so what am I going to do? Like, you know, you run the fan club, but the guy's not here. So maybe I should get another wrestler. So, of course, I pick out Billy Robinson. So here I am, an 11-year-old me explaining to Billy Robinson that I want to start a fan club for him, which he was really gracious and allowed me to do, but that the fan club is going to be part of a larger fan club with Rocky Johnson, who is the son-in-law of the guy that fish hooked out your eye. Now, I didn't say the last part, obviously. But- <laughs> yeah. That but might it, have been it might have been a little, especially for an 11 year old who'd had no idea at that stage either. But at the same time, you know, I, what I think is kind of cool is that at the whole time, Billy Robinson's probably thinking like this fucking kid, right? He's asking me to run a fan club with the son-in-law of the guy that fish hooked out my eye. With that being said, Billy Robinson could not have ever been any nicer to me that day or even when I saw him 30, 35 years later. So long story short. Yeah, Pat Barrett. We'll get back to Pat Barrett. He was, yeah, I have a we great kinda, way. Of, we kind of went on a sidetrack there. Go ahead. I have a great way of going left and staying left for like 2,000 miles, right? But Pat Barrett was a guy that, in my opinion, completely dropped off the radar at some point. I would say by early 80s. I don't remember much else in the U.S. taking place with him. I know he was doing appearances over in Ireland and stuff, but I don't remember him doing much. And, uh, he was a guy that I always hoped would that somebody would bring him in for a fan fest or something. And I don't think that ever happened in, in reading the obit that Meltzer did, which was a nice obit, by the way, he said that he didn't think that anybody was going to remember him in this country or even in Ireland. And uh, apparently was thought of as slightly eccentric by locals. So I thought that was interesting, but Jeff, as we always do, I will pick up an adult beverage, raise it, and join me in remembering Irish Pat Barrett. So Barry, I'm somewhat amazed that we were speaking the other day because we talk and text more than people know. And we have never done possibly the most famous match in the history of Memphis. Barry, we're talking hair versus hair. April 27th, 1987, inside the steel cage for those of you that have been waiting Waiting with the prefer the proverbial, it's easy for me to say, the proverbial bated breath. It's Austin Idol versus the King Jerry Lawler inside the confines of the steel cage at Weasel Paulie Dangerly. Not he had not yet become Paulie Dangerously, uh, Barry. He was still Paulie Dangerly. 
We're heading out to Mempho. Are you ready, my man? I am ready. And Jeff, just to touch on what your first line of what you were saying, if my ex, and it is official, by the way, which I don't oh, know. Congratulations. If I, it is official. I am officially divorced. But if I had communicated with my ex probably half as much as I communicate with you, I'd probably still be married, you know? A lesson for all of us, Barry, truly, yes. because we are givers. We try to teach the folks about things that they should do in their lives. So now let's get back to the universal heartthrob and the king, Barry. You've had a chance to watch this match. And, you know, I had people say to me when I did my top 100 of the 1980s, why wasn't this match on there? And Barry, what do you think? Should it have been on there? So I, I think it should have. But here's the thing, too. You know, we're looking back at a match that took place almost 35 years ago, 34 years ago. So there is a different perspective. And I don't think I think if you're judging a decade. So, you know, if you're judging a decade and you're doing your top matches of the 80s, maybe at the end of the 80s or the beginning of the 90s, things could look dramatically different 25 years later. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know if I would have included this at the time, because let's let's be honest, technically. It's not a quote unquote great match in the fact that there's no new ground broken with holds or maneuvers. You know, this is a typical Lawler and idle matchup, but in hindsight, the heat that it generates, the ramifications from this match, the fact that this has to be one of the biggest matches in Memphis wrestling history, and the fact that this occurred at a time when the territories were either dying or dead. And you can pull this off and generate the kind of excitement and heat. In hindsight, it does deserve to be on. So with that, Jeff, I remember watching this match. We used to have, and this was, you lived in South Florida in 1987. We used to have a block on television on Sunday nights. Do you remember that block? Uh, I remember on channel, uh, the venerable channel 33, we had the- the world class. We had the UWF. Uh, I don't remember Memphis being on there though. Well, no. So it, well, we had Memphis in 1985 and I think it was actually on uh, channel, channel 10 7, or no, channel, channel 10. 10. Yeah. Was it channel? Okay. Which I remember was on like Saturday mornings or something, yeah. right? Uh, WPLG channel 10. WPLG <laughs> and Bishop anchor with a whip. Exactly. For all of South Florida, <laughs> Dwight Lauderdale, Cambrell Marshall, bring it up. Walter Cronice. <laughs> Walter Cronice. Doing the weather. Those were great days right there when news was actually a fun thing to watch. But so we had this block on Sunday nights and it was at eight o'clock came on. I think it was pro wrestling this week with Gordon Soli and Joe Pettisino. And then they would show Bonnie Blackstone, Bonnie Blackstone. And then later Paulie Dangerly or Dangerously. And then after that, we got, I think, worldwide from Crockett. And then at 10 o'clock, we got another UWF show. So that Sunday night was a great block. But for me, that hook was that Gordon Soli Joe Pettisino show because they were showing stuff literally from every promotion out there, I think, with the exception of the WWF at the time. So it was exciting because you were seeing Memphis. You were seeing maybe Continental and smaller promotions that you wouldn't normally see on a regular basis unless you were trading tapes. So being able to see something as it had occurred a week or two later was really pretty friggin' awesome. I used to look forward to that every Sunday night, but I remember when they aired this match, and that was a really big deal. This was a such a great feud. You know, you took Idol, 
guy had been around Memphis at this stage for, I'll say, I don't know, seven, eight years, probably since the late 70s. I don't know the exact time frame. Lawler had been around since the early 70s. So you didn't get two guys that were fresh. But at the same time, you got two guys that the crowd knew well. But with the booking of this feud, you were able to take guys that had been around forever and draw record crowds, get people super excited. And this really, you know, it, Memphis did such a good job. We, we've talked ad nauseum. It's the first time I've ever said that, Jeff. Congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate well, and I, I, I don't ask me to spell it, but we've talked at great lengths about the Lawler and Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell feud, but that Austin Idol, Tommy Rich and Lawler feud was really in some ways just as good. And the heat that it generates, which I, I think is, you know, always a, a clear indicator if it's going to get over or not, or, or is it getting over, was fantastic. Lance Russell makes a great comment early on, you know, and he says it to Dave Brown, he goes, you know, Jerry is a slow starter, but once he gets going, and I had never really thought about that or heard that, and I think that's pretty accurate. Jerry, very methodical in the way that he starts his matches, even this match. You know, there's a, a certain pacing to it. Idle juices within the first three minutes. Lawler's probably within the next three minutes after that. The match itself is standard. Again, there's no new ground being uh, broken, you know, here. But referee gets a pile driver from idle. Rich then comes from under the ring, which at that stage, I don't know if we had ever seen that before. You know, I, I know now, you know, everybody's copied it and done well, it. Well, when when did they have the bit? Uh, did, or let's put it this way. I know they had uh, the thing in the WWE where it was a cane that came up through the mat. Yeah. But it, had that been done before, do you think? Through the mat? I don't yeah. recall through the mat ever. Possibly once. And I seem to recall in Continental, Kevin Sullivan was managing the New Guinea headhunters. And I think one of them may have come out through the map, but I don't know that for fact. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, go ahead. Yeah, but anyways, I it, this was a great spot because, you know, again, nobody expected to see Tommy Rich hiding underneath the cage. Him coming out, Rich comes out, gives Lawler the pile driver. The referee had been down at this point. I think Idol had given him the pile driver. Lawler is counted out. The place goes absolutely fucking berserk. And this is where you know you've done something right. Dangerous situation, but you've got fans trying to climb into the cage. You've got that one fan who's on the outside of the cage. He's climbed all the way up to the top. And this isn't one of those six foot cages. This is one that is, you know, it, it looks pretty high. He's up there, and Lawler and, and Idol are baiting him to come into the ring because they would have beat the fuck out of this guy. Rich and, and Idol. Rich and Idol, I'm sorry. And the fan is literally over the top of the cage, and you can see it. He's giving Idol and Rich the bird. He's shooting them the middle finger, and they're begging for this guy to come in. Lawler gets his head shaved, which is shocking. This is the longest head shaving, I also believe, in the history of professional wrestling. They beat the snot out of Lawler. Rich wraps a chain around his neck and basically is pulling him backwards. And then this barber comes in and they, what are they, what's his name? He's got an Italian name. Uh, uh, I, I thought his first name was Ted, but, but I don't remember his last name. But his, but his last like hairstylist. You know? yeah, but, but when you see the guy, he looks so out of place. His yeah. pants are like six inches too long. It just looks like this goof in the ring, but I got a kick out of it. 
My, my favorite part about the barber is after everything's <laughs> yeah. done, Waller's yeah. on the mat. He's half dead. Yes. And the guy's he he's laying face down on the mat. The guy's still shaving his head. But then after it's all done, and and Lance Russell's going, Ted, 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 please stop. It's it's over. He's done with. And then. <laughs> The guys, before he leaves, he goes back over to Lawler and brushes his shoulders, all the excess hair <laughs> off his shoulders. Did, that, did really, he, that really popped me. Did he break out the talcum powder and yeah, the warm exactly. towel? <laughs> nice, nice Vitalis for you, exactly, sir. Exactly, Vitalis. Right, he, he pulls a comb out of that fucking green liquid that the old school <laughs> barbers used to have. This guy is, he's a fucking hoot. He's clearly out of place here. Great spot where Paul Dangerly is actually collecting the hair and putting it in a plastic bag. So how much do you think Lawler got paid for this? And I should say, how big was the check that Lawler wrote out for himself for this angle? Yeah, that's probably Had a better to be, way of right? it. Well, because, you know, I don't know if you remember, I remember asking Ron Fuller uh, back in the day, like, did you pay guys that, you know, lost the, the hair matches? Did you pay them extra? And he said, no. And so, you know, but of course th that wasn't the guy that was like either the, the booker or the promoter or half owner. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Jerry wrote himself a nice check. So here's what I think about the match. Do I think this match should have been on my top 100? No. And I'm going to tell you why. Because as you correctly pointed out, the match itself is really not a whole lot. However, all that being said, the booking was incredible. The angle was incredible. The uh, reaction of the crowd was incredible. The spectacle, that's a word we've used here before, the spectacle of the match. And we talked about, you know, the match we did last week from the Tokyo Dome, uh, that part of what made that match interesting was the sheer spectacle of the, the clusterfuck going on in the ring. That's what made this match great to me. Not. Uh, the actual Austin Idol and Jerry Lawler going back and forth and punching and kicking and using foreign objects. That was like, it was okay. There was nothing wrong with it. But after like Rich comes out the last, let's just say 12 minutes of this, uh, this clip, that's when the shit really starts getting real. It's like, you're going, okay, now the fun begins. And you know, as great as Tommy Rich was as a baby face, and if, you know, for those people out there that are, you know, just a certain age and didn't get to see Tommy, Tommy Rich was a monster, monster baby face in Georgia, late 70s into the early 80s before he began getting fat. I, I can't even express to you just how over he was as the, uh, this is a phrase that he used to use, country boy can't survive. And he was just this, this aw shucks country baby face, not in a hillbilly gym kind of way. Uh, you know, he's a bleach blonde guy. Uh, the girls thought he was good looking. And, you know, he just was electric as a baby face. All that being said, I don't know that he was ever better than he was as a heel in Memphis. He was fantastic. Oh, my God. After he, he comes up and he beats the stew out of Lawler and he's like baiting the crowd. Like, come on, come on, what do you do? And he's like, you know, he's like kind of talking trash to the fans that are getting close to the cage. It was amazing. And I'm going, holy shit, man, this, you know, this guy, and, and I'm not saying I didn't know that it's just like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you go back and you look at a match. He was absolutely electric. He, in a lot of ways, was better than Idol, you know, uh, was in, in the role. Because Idol, you know, let's face it, he, he was a great promo guy. He had a great look. But no one ever accused Austin Idol of being a great worker. 
in the ring, I should say. Outside the ring, that's another story altogether. Best worker in the business outside of the ring. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> then you got Paul, who's at ringside. And if there's ever been anyone that embodied the stereotype of like a, a New Yorker that just gets under your skin and is annoying, boy, that's Paul E. I mean, can you think of anyone that came close to being that character, Bear? The only person I could think of might be Andy Kaufman, which, again, the genius of Memphis, the fact that, you know, what Andy Kaufman did in Memphis, to me, still holds up to this day. But I would actually, I would put those two on par with each other. And I I mean that completely complimentary. He was absolutely amazing. He's, you know, think about it. He's outside that cage. And, yeah, there were security guards that took them back to the dressing room. But he was standing out there with nothing but his mouth. Because let's be honest, hey, Paul's not a tough guy. If somebody takes a shot at him, it's Paul. I mean, I'm sure he tried to defend himself, but it's not like, you know, you're talking Carl Gotch out there. And But he's out there with his mouth. He's firing the crowd up. He's being, he's being everything that a manager should be, you know. But um, he was amazing. Again, by the way, you said Dave Brown was with Lance. It was Randy Hales that was with Lance, by the way. Oh, was that Randy? Okay. Yeah, it was Randy. But just so much good stuff basically after the match ends. You know, the ma- again, the match is good. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's top 100 worthy. But the spectacle after – we've had a couple of matches that we talked about over the history of this Peabody and Sher- Sherman Award-winning podcast, break that we have said that were my top 100. Well – this match was good. The spectacle of this match, you know, I, I remember talking about the Akira Maeda versus Don Nakai and Nielsen match. And I remember us talking about the Chigusa Nagoya versus Dump Matsumoto hair match. Yep. And just the spectacles of the match, watching the way the crowd becomes so emotional. I mean, we've had matches before where the crowd's emotionally invested, but this is where the mat- uh, a match where the crowd is just like, as you said, just losing their fucking minds, you know, that their hero has been cheated. And, you know, I will say that uh, Jerry Lawler's quote unquote head shaving eh, it was kind of more like a crew cut. Let's just put it that way. Uh, the, the King didn't go full on uh, stone cold, if you will. But this was a really good match. Everybody in the match deserved uh, to be paid richly and rewarded richly. And, you know, I'm sure Lawler took his uh, his money's worth. But I sure hope Idol Rich and, and Paul got paid too, because they, they did a stand-up job too, Bear. Yeah, I'll tell you, there, there's, there are a few promotions out there, and I think Memphis is really the first one that comes to mind. They need a documentary on the history of Memphis wrestling, and I'm not talking about a WWE-produced documentary. I'm talking about somebody that grew up in the 1960s or 70s that somehow is a, a filmmaker or something, because when you go back and you look, and specifically at what Jerry Lawler accomplished, what guys like, I mean, Bill Dundee is what, 5'5", five, five, Jeff? Like 5'5", yeah, no, five, five, maybe 100. I mean, legitimately, what would he be, 170 pounds maybe? And what they were able to do in getting fans to buy into their matches, selling out on a weekly basis or drawing. I was at the Mid-South Coliseum. I think they sat close to 10,000 people. 10,000 people, 8,000 people showing up every Monday night and you've got a guy that's 5'5 five, five in the main event, and, and, and this is going on for years, what that says is you're doing incredible booking. You understand what the crowd wants to see, and you're giving it to them. I find that absolutely incredible. So I think a history of Memphis wrestling documentary really needs to be done. 
Well, you know, we've talked before about the the great promo guys in the history of the business. And, you know, people will talk about Terry Funk, uh, Dusty Rhodes, uh, people like that, The Rock, and, and deservedly so. But I think it was Pete Lederberg that first told me this. You think about the fact that Lawler, whether he was a heel in the beginning of his career after he turned babyface and he had that babyface run for, good Lord, almost what, at least over 10 years before he turned. But every single week, he had to sell himself and his opponent to the exact same audience. And he did this over the course of about 20 years total as a, as a main event wrestler in Memphis. I mean, the guy's in his 70s and still... He still draws huge crowds when he goes and works some gimmick stipulation match against somebody, uh, you know, in Jonesboro, Arkansas or Jackson, Tennessee. And people will show up to see Jerry Lawler because that's what he meant to this city. And granted, much like we've discussed before, Barry, that uh, part of the reason CWF was such a big draw for so long, especially like in areas like Tampa and Orlando and Jacksonville, there was no major sports team in those towns. And Memphis did not. Jerry Lawler was essentially in Memphis would like guys like Dan Marino were uh, in, in Miami, you know, and, and uh, Joe Namath was in New York. He was their big local celebrity athlete. And the fact that this guy over, I'm just going to say 20 years, 20 years, he put crowd and, you know, of course they had the ebbs and flows that would go to it. They would draw, you know, huge houses. And then maybe they'd have an idea that you know maybe wasn't such a great idea and the crowds would go down for a while but then they'd pop them back up again and you know the the ability of Lawler and Jerry Jarrett to do this bit where they rotated 6 months off and 6 months on as booker was really kind of brilliant and there were things that Lawler did as a booker that was absolutely brilliant he had dumb stuff he did too like when he would bring in like the mummy or frankenstein because he liked you know uh, scary movies when he was a kid and so he thought everyone else would like that you know it's just like Dusty Rhodes when he was up in Mid-Atlantic and he would book uh, David Allen Coe because he loved David Allen Coe. So I guess everybody else does too, you know? It <laughs> yes. didn't work out so well. But my point is that for 20 years, Jerry Lawler got on the, uh, a TV show and talked to the same basic audience and put butts in the seats, not because of a pay-per-view, but be- to be a live attendee at the Mid-South Coliseum and all throughout, you know, was it Louisville? Uh, help me out here, Evansville, all the other, t- Nashville, all the other towns in their circuit, he put their asses in the seat because of his ability to connect with the audience on promos, whether it's as the you know, the, the king, the good guy king who's going to stand, going to have our backs against these friggin' uh, heels and villains, or as the villain very early in his career. And let's not forget, Jerry Lawler, in the beginning of his career, man, people fucking hated that guy, you know? But it just shows the incredible gift he had to use his voice, his mouth to get people in the seats bear. You know, that's what you said, especially the opening, uh, the opening couple of lines about being able to go out. So I lost you after the opening couple of lines. You know, I have ADD, (laughs) you know, I mean, literally you had me for 30 and then I'm out. Right. But wake up folks. Barry's talking. Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) yeah, go grab a cup of coffee. So, but really what you said was really important. And it's, again, it was paraphrasing whatever Pete said that essentially Lawler for two decades went out, sold himself, sold his opponent and sold the match on a weekly basis and drew incredible crowds. That's absolutely, has anybody ever had in professional wrestling? And I'll have to say, let's go back 
maybe the 60s upwards, because maybe it's not fair if we look at the 50s. Has anybody else had the run that Lawler had in Memphis? And really what I'm looking for is not somebody that did it for two or three years, because certainly, you know, Dusty had a great run in Florida, right? It lasted 10 years, but after 10 years, it was over. And, and point being when he tried to do that whole promotion, which was uh, PWF, I think, right. Or yeah, he was drawing like 500 to the James L Knight center. So obviously, you know, once Florida had closed down, he had lost all of his drawing power in the state. I don't think anybody ever had possibly Bruno in the Northeast, maybe Pittsburgh specifically. But I, I think what Lawler did in Memphis is unmatched in the fact that he can still draw a big crowd knowing he's 72 years old. He's had a heart attack. He's had plastic surgery. I think it's just absolutely remarkable to his connection to the city of Memphis. And more importantly, the city of Memphis connected to Lawler. You know, I I think the Bruno comparison is a pretty good one. I would say though, that Bruno's run as a babyface whether with Pittsburgh or Madison square garden, whatever, it would be a good comparison, except I don't think Bruno lasted quite as long. And the other thing you have to remember was Bruno was not going and working Madison Square Garden every week. Right. He would do it once every month. Lawler was going out every Monday night. I mean, it's cra- crazy. And, you know, Bruno and Pittsburgh would certainly be a fair comparison, but I don't think the run was nearly as long as Lawler's. And I'm not sure if Pittsburgh ran every week or not, but... uh you know, that would be a, the closest, I think, comparison as far as the the length of the run. Uh, you know, we've had guys that have been, you know, people like the Von Erics were over, but it was, a, you know, a tremendous business, but very short. JYD in Louisiana, tremendous business, but very short. Probably, you know, another comparison you could probably make uh, is in uh, Kansas City, Bulldog Bob Brown. That's, yeah. that's that was a little joke there, Bear. Uh, you know. yeah, but there's a lot of truth, though, to what you just said. And I think what's remarkable about Brown is apparently, to some degree, he was over. Like, if you've ever seen him work, and I know you have, he was not good in the ring. His promos were not good. Uh, he spoke like he had mashed potatoes in his mouth. He physically didn't look like he looked like a, a grandfather with a really bad haircut. You know, he looked like he looked like the detective from Bosch. That yes, one, yes. That, you know which one exactly. Yeah, I know, a I know tank. what you're talking about. Crate, crate, barrel, barrel is who he looked like. That's right, yeah. But, but he had, you know what he was? I don't know, can't believe we're getting off on a bulldog bump sure. around tangent. <laughs> uh, but he was like sort of a low-rent Ole Anderson, you know? Uh, like Super low. Super low. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, like in the sense that his ability to get over was based on him coming off as like a bully to the fans in Kansas City and those towns that, that ran around Kansas he was the the bully that you wanted to see get his ass handed to him. Yeah, but again, here's a guy who was not physically imposing. He wasn't. No, tall, not at all. No. Wasn't in shape. Sweet Lou checking in, by the way, through Messenger. He was over with Bob Geigel, which would be accurate. And that's very important. That yeah, is. And, so. and part of the reason with that is apparently Bulldog Bob Brown was one of the biggest stooges in the history of professional wrestling, which I think also really says a lot. When you stop and think about that, but apparently you couldn't fart in the central states without Brown running back to Geigel and, and stooging off on somebody. <laughs> so <laughs> that'd be accurate. So, yeah, so this match, uh, Austin Idol versus Jerry Lawler in the cage, April 27th, 1987. We'll post a link in our Facebook group. Uh, again, don't go in this expecting to see some kind of lights out match, like, you know, that's just going to be incredible. 
and you're going to go, holy shit, this is the greatest match I've ever seen. No, stick around, watch the slow build, and then wait for well, about 12 minutes left when Tommy Rich makes his appearance. And I love the way that Lance sold that. Like, where, where did he come from? Where's he been? And, of course, legend has it that Tommy was given basically a case of beer, maybe two, <laughs> and, like, put under the ring before everybody else came into the building and, uh, you know, had himself a good old time just sitting there drinking his face stupid. And and then he popped up, and no one expected it. And, you know, the, the stuff of legends are born from that. You know, and suddenly Tommy Rich was relevant again for a couple of weeks. So, Jeff, here's the all-important question. Yes. Did did Tommy Rich have a piss jug underneath the ring with him? <laughs> if I say yes. Much, I would I would think so because otherwise yes. somebody in the front row is going. Y'all smell piss around here. <laughs> okay, this will be the piss jug episode. <laughs> there you go, Barry. You are known in the uh, not just the Breaking K Fade with Badger and Barry group. I, I think throughout the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You are known as Mr. Vacay, Mr. Vacation. You take more fucking vacation time than any man known uh, I've ever known, which, by the way, congratulations on that. So you recently had a chance to go down again to FLA and then go back. You and Ozzy making a road trip. Why don't you tell the good folks how that went? Yeah, and I, we should say, too, Jeff, that if we're still having the same conversation in six months and I'm still employed, That'll be a fucking miracle because I, start, <laughs> I, I started looking at all the time I've taken. And look, the, the company gives you days off, right? These are the days that you're allowed. You can take these days. They encourage you. At least they say that they encourage you to utilize your time because your time does not roll over. So when I, when I started looking at it, I'm like, I've got all this time. I'm going to take it. So, you know, I, I started doing a, a, a checklist of everywhere that Ozzy and I don't go anywhere without Ozzy at this stage. He is, uh, he's a good boy, I don't, he's a good boy but look, he's, I don't board him. I I'm not a fan of the way that he reacts when I board him for some people it works. And I think that's great, but Ozzy, you know, the last time I boarded him, which has been five or six years ago, Jeff, I came home and, uh, I brought him home and I couldn't get up to pee for two weeks at 3 AM. I couldn't get up to pee without him following me into the bathroom. So it said to me that, okay, it, me boarding him is doing some damage. I'll never do it again. And I've never done it again. And I won't do it again. If I have to cancel, I'll cancel. It's just the way it goes. So with that, Ozzy and I were obviously in town for uh, the big CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz. And then I stayed for an additional week afterwards. And I was going to try to stay even longer but as it turns out, I had to come back. So I left, I drove back to Pennsylvania, and then five and a half days later, I was right back in the car with Ozzy, headed down to beautiful Reddington Beach, Madera Beach, Florida, where I've been for essentially the last week. And I just got back last night, uh, and I gotta tell you, I'm dragging a little bit. As I get older, these trips are a little tougher. I tend to keep myself awake in the car by singing very loudly and expending all this energy. And I think I passed out last night, Jeff, around 9.30, and I woke up at 7 o'clock this morning. So I got a great night of sleep, but I am dragging a bit. And I got to tell you, so this was a vacation uh, that I took essentially by myself. It was just Ozzy and myself, Zach in school, uh, the lovely Zoe in school. So I didn't get a chance to bring either one of them, but it was just Ozzy and myself. But at the same time, you talk about a relaxing, peaceful vacation. And Jeff, what did I do on this vacation? I essentially slept. Consumables? Yes. 
consumables. <laughs> you relaxed. That's the first thing that came to mind. Yes, I did. I don't think I even had one alcoholic. Be- I'm not a big drinker, but I don't. I didn't have one alcoholic beverage. But yeah, I did it. I did enjoy my. Uh, there were some consumables and some products. But essentially, I uh, I woke up. I went to the beach every single day and spent hours at the beach. I actually went fishing and then I went out to eat. And that was really all I did. And for some people, they might listen to that and go, that sounds really fucking boring. That's all you did. And you didn't have anybody else with you. How boring. And I was like, no, not boring at all. I got to tell you. Trying to tell the listeners that you did not spend all the time at the beach, all the time going out and relaxing on your phone, monitoring the breaking cafe, but Bowser and Barry. (laughs) No, including (laughs) phone calls from you giving me updates. If you remember, (laughs) you're like, I don't know if you've seen this, but this is like, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. So no. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is, and you and I have talked, I, I don't spend as much time on social media as I decided, you know, once I became single, it was like, I'm not living in a fucking basement anymore. Right. So it's like, I want to get out and I want to do shit and I want to experience the world again between living in a basement because I was getting divorced and COVID the pandemic. I was like locked in a fucking room for uh, over a year. So it was like, no, I'm going to get out. Well, and I'm didn't you get. tell me today that you were planning on taking a vacation to Idaho? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not going to Kevin Orcutt. That was for you. <laughs> I did share your message with Jeff, but we'll, we'll stop right there. But I am, as we, as we're recording this, I've already planned two more vacations this really? year. That you didn't tell me. Where are you going now? I did too. I told you I'm taking off the second oh, oh, half. Your kids. Yeah. Okay. Taking off the second half of December and I'm going right back to Florida. I am driving to Pittsburgh first, picking up Zach, then heading down to Florida for a week at the same beach house in Reddington, Madera beach. And then coming back, Jeff, I'll be in town for about 13 hours, and then I'm taking Zoe. I think we Zoe. can squeeze an episode out. <laughs> exactly. I'll be ready to record around midnight when I get I home. I think that's where we're doing the, uh, the Kobashi Masawa rematch. Uh, that's a 60 uh, minutes. 60 minutes. At, or we'll do the Anoki uh, Masa Saido Island death match for like <laughs> exactly. three hours. But I, I'll be back in town for 13 hours, and then I'm right back in the car headed to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, this time with Zoe. So I'm taking separate vacations. It's not that we all don't get along. It's that uh, they have separate schedules when it comes to school. Uh, Zach, obviously, at University of Pittsburgh. Zoe, a senior in high school. Should say Zoe is about 90% sure that she is going to Pitt next year. She has been accepted to five schools, and Pitt is at the very top of her list. So that makes Hashtag in-state tuition. Yes, sir. That makes I'm happy for two reasons. That's the first, and the second is... Her brother will be nearby in case she ever needs him. Uh, I should say she'll be nearby in case Zach ever needs Zoe because she is the more responsible and mature of the two. Uh, Boom. Dropping the hammer on Zach. I love, look, he's my boy, but Zach is exactly like me. Zoe is, Zoe could be the first female president of the United States. She is so fucking dialed in. She is so logical. She is so just on the money with everything. Yeah, she's, she's incredible. But with that, Jeff, one of the highlights of my trip was a lot of the food that I ate. And I would love to share some of those experiences. Please, please. So food for me, you know, it's funny. I go on vacation and my vacations literally, you know, where am I eating? And, I, and I've always lived this kind of this kind of credo, this mantra. Every meal should count. You know, there should be no, oh, I'm just 
you know, my ex and God bless her, because I know for some people this works. She would eat the same thing every day. There was nothing she was eating to eat. It was time to eat lunch. Let me go eat. She didn't really care. If I eat lunch, I think about what I'm going to have. I think, you know, I build it up in my head how great this will be. I make every except for breakfast, which is the same shit every day for me. Lunch and dinner, I build up into uh, an event. So I had some great meals and I'm going to share that with you. So let's talk about the public subs for a minute, Jeff. I had one today as we speak. No. What'd you I have? Had, I had a roast beef and Swiss, uh, a little bit of salt and pepper on there. It was delicious. What kind of bread did you have it on? Which, which uh, your regular uh, yeah, white bread uh, sub kind of thing. So I discovered for the first time during my last trip to Florida, the Italian five grain. And holy fuck, it's a game changer for me right there. So I also discovered a new sub. I guess they do the specials every so often. You'll see it on the uh, on the front counter the display and they were doing the London broil Italian sub. Oh, now, usually Jeff, I am a chicken tender sub guy because that is at a different level as well. I like that with a little honey mustard. You can't go wrong with any of their subs though, right? Yeah. I mean, they're all going to be good, but I said, you know what? Why don't we try this London broil? So they've got a London broil. It's kind of like roast beef, but the flavor is a little different. It's hard for me to describe. Then they marry that London broil with pepperoni, Italian salami, and provolone cheese. Get that toasted, get that heated up, put your toppings on. I'm usually a lettuce, tomato, onion, banana pepper guy. I put a little of the uh, deli dressing. This sub, Jeff, was at a different level. I, I walked away after the first bite. And I just, I, I realized I'm always, again, it's never lost on me that I have a good life, right? And this was another <laughs> instance where I said, fuck, am I fortunate to be eating this sub? This is really, really good. So my first three days on Madeira Beach, I had the same sub three days in a row. That's how much I liked it. It was that great. Apparently. I took off, apparently, completely obsessed, right? I took off the rest of the trip. I got one yesterday in Virginia at the northernmost Publix on my ride home. So I had something for lunch and then for dinner, but this sub was at a different level. I also discovered a pizza place and I, I want to call out Frankie Seacrest who lives in the area. Frank, you're getting the call out. And I was like, Frankie, how come you've never told me how good the pizza is at slice? And by national standards, it might be an eight, maybe an 8.5 by Florida standards. It's a solid 11. So it's, it was off the charts. But I, I couldn't believe how good this pizza was. It was thin, and I like a thin pizza too. It was thin. It was cooked perfectly. The cheese had flavor. The sauce had uh, some spices in it. That was great. The pepperoni was good. Everything about it I really liked. And I reached out to Frankie, and I'm like, Frankie, how come you've never told me about Slice? And he said, he goes, do I look like I eat pizza? Which, by the way, Frankie, you do look like you eat pizza. No offense, but you absolutely do. But it was a line, I think, that some supermodel had said on a show. But I got to tell you, that pizza was phenomenal. I then got a second pizza from another restaurant locally called Frabotas, and I got the Detroit style. And lately in our group, in the, and if you're not in the, as I always say, if you're not in the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group, what are you doing? Because it's and a Why great are you group. listening to our show? Yeah, but the group is an extension of the podcast, and it's not, you know, if you see something in the group, 
we're probably talking about it on the show. So you definitely want to get involved with that. But I posted a photo of the Detroit-style pizza, and there had been a post where people were asking, somebody had asked, there was a meme, and it said, rank these pizzas and as your uh, favorite. Uh, 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 hum. Who was oh, that? Oh, wait, that, that wasn't just someone, apparently. <laughs> oh, hold on here. See, was, you go to the beach, and you're yes. sitting there on your ass getting tanned, yes. and you don't, you know, you're not active, and what's going on, <laughs> and look what happened. It was, so apparently it was Jeff that posted this, and it was, New York, Chicago, Detroit, and St. Louis. So I had an opportunity for Detroit pizza. That meme was the first thing I thought of, and I went and I tried it. And I got to tell you, it's really good. What I like about Detroit-style pizza, obviously, I like the edges. They get that crispy, burnt cheese thing. Pepperoni's kind of hidden underneath, and then they always put the pepperoni cups on top. We also had a great conversation this past week, which was based off of your meme, on do you like flat pepperoni or pepperoni cups? I am a pepperoni cup guy. I like flat pepperoni, but the flavor on the cups is at a different level. So the Detroit style pizza was very good. Didn't love it as much as Slice, but again, Slice was completely unexpected. But I, and I hit Culver's. I hit Culver's twice. You know, what could I say? I love Culver's. Can never go wrong, but I gotta tell you, my last dinner, which would have been on a Saturday night, Jeff, was the kind of dinner where dreams are made of, at least for this guy, pound and a half of jumbo stone crab claws. <sighs> I had been Joe's. Yeah, well, they're they're essentially no matter what anybody says, they're almost always the same. They're as good as Joe's. Absolutely. If you get a fresh stone crab claw, it, it's going to be good. You can kind of tell when some are frozen and sometimes they are. But when it's fresh. They're good. So these were jumbos. I researched the best place. I actually went to a seafood distributor and got them. So it wasn't a restaurant. It was a seafood market. Got a pound and a half. I got some of the mustard sauce. I prefer them cold. I went home, put them in the refrigerator, took a consumable, waited about 90 minutes. And 20 minutes later, I had demolished a pound and a half of stone crab claws. Cost me, I don't know, 45, 46 bucks. Just me. Thank God it was just me. Thank God I wasn't paying for a kid or so a So Ozzy didn't get any of the stone crabs? Ozzy did not. However, I did get two pounds of French fries with it, and uh, I could only eat about one pound. So he had about a pound of fries, explaining why my boy is still sacked out on the couch right next to me right now. But Jeff, are you a stone crab guy at all? I'm not. Do you like crabs at all? I, uh, I had them once when I was in college, but. Uh... <clears throat> no. Shot, shot, and some medicine cured it. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a the shampoo you can use. I believe. <laughs> there's a shampoo. There you I go. I have no fucking idea. I don't know. No, not okay. a fan of crabs. Gotcha. So you don't eat any kind of crab. No. Gotcha. Seafood. Uh, shrimp, of course, and shrimp, uh, certain okay. kinds of fish. Okay. So I I love crab. I love shellfish. I love crab. Alaskan king crab is at a different level. The Dungeness, where Sweet Lou is very famous for Dungeness crabs out there, snow crab, but you give me a stone crab and that's it. And I got to tell you, I do like the Dungeness and I, I'll tell you, Lou, when I was out there in San Francisco, sweet Lou, join us for a moment while I can wax poetically about the last time I was in San Francisco. Oh, please do. Or pontificate one or the other. But as I was uh, out there, I was walking along the wharf and there are signs posted there that says, please do not disturb the Dungeness crab. It's illegal to take them. 
So I had no idea that all the Dungeness crab were literally right there by the docks in San Francisco. Were you aware of that as well? Uh, no, not really. Oh. All right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly where they uh, where they inhabit in in the bay. Barry breaking kayfabe to Sweet Lou. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. no it, kidding. All I know now is this year's Dungeness crab season was delayed because of the killer whale migration. So it's not until December that we get a. a You're trying to say your crab. crabs, your crabs can't deal with the uh, the killer whales. Hey, get the fuck out of my lane here, buddy. I'm I'm going through. Yeah, maybe that'll be a problem. Yeah, that could be a slight problem. Yeah, and I will tell you too, Lou. When I was out there, I took a boat from I from land to uh, what's the name of the uh, Alcatraz to Alcatraz, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw a killer whale, and my first thought was shit, look, it's a shark. Cause I know that there's a lot of great white sharks out in that area apparently as well. And, uh, the skipper or the captain, whatever he was, the guy running the boat said, Oh, look, we have killer whales on this side. And then there's a lot of seals that are jumping also. So a lot of, a lot of wildlife that's out there, but those Dungeness crabs, Lou, a little more work than a stone crab. It takes some work with those little pockets of crab meat. This episode of the National Geographic will return. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Boudron and Barry brought to you by the Monterey Bay Aquarium. (laughs) Harlan Perkins, Barry will go out and fight the killer whale while I remain in the boat. (laughs) So to wrap it up, Jeff, this was a great trip. It was a relaxing trip and I'm home. I'm tired. But I know in 24 hours, I'm going to be ready to get right back in the car and make that drive down again. So Barry was referencing uh, his boy Ozzy and uh, what's been going on with him. Hey, you mentioned the uh, whole uh, taking him, putting him in a kennel when you go on vacation and how it stresses out the dog. Uh, Mrs. Bowder and I, when we uh, go out of town, we, in fact, do not also uh, kennel or or uh, send our, uh, our dogs away because I can't even imagine how my boy Gunny would react. So we have someone uh, my son will come over and stay with them. Uh, and when he has to go to work, we actually are very lucky. We have a, a lovely young girl that's uh, in high school that lives right next door to us that comes over. Eh, lets him out once or twice. And uh, and then when my son gets home, ba-ba-boom, he's all set to go. And so that works out real well. So let me, though, tell you about an experience this past weekend that Mrs. Bowder and I went through. So my daughter, the lovely Kelly, is on vacation. She and her husband, Brandon, with two other couples, took a cruise out of Miami uh, going, I want to say, down to maybe to Puerto Rico or something. I'm not sure. But uh, so their house, uh, while they're not there, uh, they're having a little bit of work done uh, on the uh, the bathrooms, a contractor coming in, doing some work. And uh, so anyway, they needed someone to, uh, you know, they're asking me, can you come over and stay with us? Well, so they have two dogs, okay? They have uh, a boxer whose uh, name is, uh, oh, Colossus, okay? And they have another dog. It's a mixed breed. And his name is, fuck, why can't I think of it? Uh, let me think of it. I'll, it'll come to me in a second. But anyway, the other dog, not Colossus, got some so, uh, social issues. Let's just put it this way. And uh, he um, has uh, a little bit of anger. Uh, I don't know why, because my daughter saved him. you know. But he still, he's got some anger issues, okay? So I just remembered uh, the other dog's name is uh, Jugs uh, from Juggernaut. My daughter naming both her dogs, Barry, after characters in the X-Men. So uh, big Marvel fans. So anyway, so Jugs is the one that's got some issues. And so Jugs, uh, during the day when no one is home, is crated. 
And the reason he's created, I'm not a huge fan of the crating, but he's created because he's been known to get a little sideways on his brother Colossus and go after him, okay? So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to deal with this dog. Uh, you know, he and the dog, Colossus, the boxer, very sweet, a little bit skittish, but very nice. Uh, once he remembers who you are, he'll come and sit next to you on the couch and everything's good. Jugs, hey, eh, it takes a little while longer to get, uh, you know, to where he's going to like you. And I don't go over as much as I probably should. So Jugs, of course, doesn't know me that well. So he's uh, in the great. Well, anyway, the reason I tell is, so I'm getting ready to go over there like on a, a Monday. Well, it's that Saturday night, we get the phone call from my son. It's about uh, 1030-ish, okay? Uh, Mrs. Bowdrin and I are... Uh, we're in our uh, our night clothes, if you will, uh, getting ready oh. to, uh, you know, you know. I'm wearing the teddy. She's got, oh, no, I'm sorry. <clears throat> no, uh, what I meant to say was, uh, so, uh, but we're essentially getting ready for bed. We're like watching like maybe part of the game and then we're going to go, go to bed. And so the phone rings and my son has a tendency to uh, overreact a little bit. And maybe it's like the, uh, the Asperger's or whatever, as I've mentioned before. But when my son kind of loses it, I know that something's really wrong. And so Kim's on speaker, oh, hello. And she's like, okay, uh, mom, uh, Jugs, uh, he, he cut his foot or something, and there's a lot of blood. And so Kim's like, well, okay, well, the first thing you need to do, uh, you know, where is he? He's right here with me. He's bleeding. And he says, okay, well, then you need to go get a, like, get a hand towel or something and wrap it around his foot, put pressure on it to stop the blood. Okay. Okay. And you're like, let me know how it goes. I'll call you back in a few minutes. So then Kim calls her daughter. Now, mind you, our daughter has already left for Florida. She's spending the night in Orlando. So Kim's like, you know, she's like, hello. And Kim's like, did you hear? Yes, he called me. And of course, as you would with Ozzy, as I would with Gunny or our dogs, you know, or our dog Molly, if something happened to him and you're out of town, of course, you're freaking out. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So she's freaking out. And, you know, of course, she's a, uh, a veterinary uh, uh, technician or assistant uh, at an animal hospital. So she kind of, you know, she knows what the hell to do, but she's not there. So, you know, she's like, Andy didn't take a picture of it or anything. So I don't know exactly what he did to his paw. Okay. But it, his paw is bleeding and it's, it apparently is kind of bad. So then uh, she says, well, what do you want me to do? I don't know. I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. She's like, well, okay. If you, if you need me to do something, call me. And I'm sitting there very, Barry, what do you suppose I'm thinking? Oh, you're already like, fucking shit, why does this happen to me? And we're getting ready to go over there because, of course, naturally, we've got to have mom there to take care of the situation. Yep. So she calls Andy back. Hey, how's it going? Well, uh, the, you know, he, he's okay. It looks like the blood is, is stopping. Uh, he's doing. So then Andy informs us, you know, if you look at uh, your boy Ozzy's paw, they got the, uh, you know, let's just say uh, they – the main in the front, you know, where the nails are on the side, you got the little, your little hook there. Uh, you know, I, I call it like the Coke nail for dogs. And uh, it, I've never, you know, that, that's what I've heard it's called. <laughs> so anyway. For dogs, the Coke exactly. nail for dogs. Okay. When Ozzy wants to do a toot, you know, he's. Right, uh, exactly. Or his flares. I got to do a little bump, you know. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so apparently what had happened was the dog somehow, I don't know if it was when he was crated or what, he tore that particular nail. Okay. So that's where the blood is coming from. So Kim's like, what do you want me to do? And she's like, he was like, well, mom, I don't know. And so Kim's like, okay. Uh, he's, he's, she's telling me he's not going to know how to bandage the thing. 
So naturally, we have to get up and go over to my daughter's house, where, of course, my, my son lives also. So now it's like quarter 11 at night. We're driving over there. And although my daughter technically lives in the same town as we do, basically, she's out in bumfuck, okay? It's like uh, go down the two-lane road. And then when you get to the uh, one particular uh, thing, you go down a dirt road. You know, she's way the fuck out there. So it's not like you jump on the interstate and you go one exit. And uh, she lives in the uh, the multi-house development to the right. Uh, it's a bit of a trek. So we get out there. And of course, because I know the dogs now are like wound up because of this injury. I'm like, look, why don't I just stay in the car? If you need me, you know, just text me and I'll come inside. But I'll stay out here just so the dogs hopefully will remain kind of calm. Okay, fine. So she goes in and she's in there a while and she's in there a while and she's in there a while. And I'm not hearing from her. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Well, you know, why hasn't she, you know, come outside or why hasn't she texted me and said, you know, like everything's okay or there's a problem or whatever. And honestly, we're not sure if we're not going to have to take the dog to an animal hospital to get, you know, some sort of uh, wound care or something like that. But of course, my wife, as part of her job and a part of her training, had dealt in wound care. So she knows what to do. She knows how to wrap up the, the point. She's not a vet, but she knows how to wrap up the injury and uh, put gauze on it, that kind of stuff, and, and clean and dress the wound, as they say. So finally, my wife comes out. It's like, eh, like uh, 20, 25 minutes. And uh, so I'm sitting out there. I'm like, oh, I said, well, well, how's he doing? Oh, he's okay. I said, okay. I said, well, well what's, what's going on? What took you so long? She looks at me and utters the following line. <clears throat> oh, my God, it looks like a crime scene in there. And I said, what, well, why does it look like a crime scene? Well, he, so he, he tears the nail and begins bleeding, okay? Then he proceeds to jump on my daughter's bed in the master bedroom, goes running down the hall, trail of blood, comes out to the living room, jumps up on the couch, blood all over the couch. So then he jumps down on the floor. The other dog, being a dog, begins sniffing the blood and licking the blood. So my wife says I was part of what I was doing there was I was trying to clean up the blood that was literally running down the hallway and on the bed. And she's like, she's going to have to hire professional cleaners for the bed and the mattress and to get it off her couch. Thankfully she's got like some sort of a, like a vinyl or leather couch or something, but it still like was, was stained uh, on the couch. So, Oh yeah. All this happening. We, we get home at like a quarter to 12. And I said, now do you need to de-stress? And are you going to sit down here? Or are you ready to go? To, no, I'm ready to go to bed. Let's go. And we both fell asleep in uh, approximately 60 seconds because it was kind of exhausting. Dog drama, Barry. Yeah, look, Jeff, we've all been there as as dog owners. Uh, and I got to say, yeah, the blood thing would freak me out. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure we both have dealt with uh, loose stool movements in the house. Well, maybe. Yeah, I'm talking about our dogs, not just us. And, oh, uh, well, I thought you okay. dogs, yeah. There was a time in in my house where uh, Ozzy had diarrhea and he was going, it, it was bad diarrhea, and he was downstairs in the living room. We were upstairs in the bedroom and I heard him walking around. So I came down and immediately you could smell it, but he had actually gone in several Ethiopian spots. food? Yeah, it was Ethiopian. That's, it was a new thing from Alpo. It's their Ethiopian feast. And Ozzy had actually stepped in it, and there were paw prints all over the rugs, the furniture, everywhere, and it was all diarrhea paw prints. So it sucks. Oh, it's uh, that's one of those moments. But 
you know, I've always had this attitude. Uh, you just got to fucking do it, right? <laughs> you just so, dig, dig ask, in and just do it. It's not let going me away. Ask you, has Ozzy ever, you know, I know because he's he's a special breed, but he does he do any paw chewing? No, none, none whatsoever. Okay. So our other dog, Molly, is a paw chewer, and she has uh, different allergies. And uh, so she does the chewing on her paws because she has these allergies. And so it gets to the point where like she has white paws and her paws will be stained like kind of brownish because she chews and she bleeds and we'll know when she's uh, ready to get another uh, allergy shot because we'll start noticing, oh, look there, there's some nice blood on the carpet or something like that. And it's because she's doing the chewing. So yeah, being a dog owner, lots of good times occasionally bury the, uh, the bad ones also. It's, you know what, Jeff, I've always said being, I raised children, I've raised a dog and the similarities are really incredible. You know, in, in some ways kids, at least during the, the, the toilet training stage, kids at least have diapers on dogs. (laughs) Don't, you know, and dogs just go, but look, I remember when I got Ozzy in the beginning, Jeff, and it was, we got Ozzy, uh, for on Christmas day in 2013. And he was a gift for, for the kids. Obviously, I knew whose dog it was within 10 days. But this was the same year up in the Northeast that we were experiencing the polar vortex. And even though it was 20 degrees outside, between this polar vortex, it felt like it was minus 20. At the same time, I had a raging case of the flu. So I, I was up at 3 a.m. toilet training and walking Aussie potty training outside. And it's it's painful. And I, I got to tell you, I questioned, I'm like, you know, cause you're, I'm miserable, right? Why did I have to get a dog? Why did, you know, and now I look back and I'm like, my God, greatest decision I've ever made. I think of course, uh, yeah. absolutely. But the similarities, the parallels between raising a child and raising a dog, they're there. They're absolutely there, Jeff. Uh, so I'll tell you a story uh, that I haven't told you yet. So the other day I kind of, uh, I tweaked my back a little bit, you know, so back's been a little sore. I got to watch like when I get up, it's a little bit, you know, tender. You got to make sure you're okay. I'm up. I'm fine now. And so, uh, our boy Gunny starts off the night, usually sleeping between us. Okay. And then at some point he gets up and he goes down and usually sleeps on the ottoman. But so last night he's sleeping between us and, uh, you know, it's been a little chilly around here. So, you know, he's looking for, as I say, a little snuggle time, except last night Gunny was sleeping with his feet towards me. And I guess his back would be, I guess, more towards Kim. So anyway, so I'm sitting there and like, you know, eh, maybe 10, 15 minutes going by. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm just to the point where you're kind of, okay, I'm going to get ready to start falling asleep. You know, it's getting ready to happen. And then my boy Gunny gets a little bit of what they call the Jimmy leg. (laughs) And And he starts kicking me in the back of the head. And I'm like, what the F gun? And so, like, I turn over and I tap him on the on the side, and all of a sudden I see this head pop up over the covers, and he puts his face right on top of the covers, and he's looking at me with a like a half sleepy face, and I'm like, really? Am I going to be upset at this face? No, I can't be upset at that face because he he's so damn cute. I can't. But he kicked me right in the damn back of the damn head, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Look again, there are children, Jeff, and exactly. Uh, exactly. Look, I you know Ozzy is. Uh, you know, he shit on me before he's peed on. It, it just, it comes with the territory. You're a parent. This is all part of it. But uh, the Jimmy leg, there was a time too. Uh, Ozzy, when we go on vacation, Ozzy does tend to sleep in the same bed as me. 
And a lot of times if we're back home, he's fine. He has the, but I think he wants to be closer and, uh, you know, he'll wake up at 4 a.m. and he'll start a licking fest of his, you know, whether it's his genitals or his leg. The old and, George uh, Carlin joke, why do dogs lick their balls? Because they can. Anyway, which is but. the God's honest truth, right? And <laughs> then, do you remember Paul Rodriguez, yeah. the comedian? So yeah. Paul Rodriguez had a line he was talking about when he was on an airplane and the stewardess comes on and she says, in the event of an emergency, please put your head between your legs. And he screams out, if I could do that, I'd never leave the fucking house. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, yeah, but it is. It's Ozzy will go to like Lick Town, as I call it, and it wakes me up. But, you know, I'm like, fuck Ozzy, really? But you can't get mad at our dogs, right? Very proud to announce that we here at Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the three best friends you didn't know you had. Proud voters for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Let me mention that again, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> We're proud to have a new sponsor, Barry. That's right. New sponsor alert. As friend of the show, Greg Klein, the writer of the book Paper Tigers, we're proud to say is a sponsor. Barry, why don't you tell us a little bit about Paper Tigers? Absolutely. And just to echo what Jeff just said, we are absolutely thrilled. First off, uh, Greg is a tremendous guy. He's got a, a wrestling background. He was an actual trained wrestler, trained by Jerry Gray, I believe worked with Adrian Street. But has also written the JYD book, uh, has, has done a lot of things with film. He's been an actor. But he has written this great book called The Paper Tigers, which is the untold true story of how eight guys from the streets of Philadelphia became major league baseball players for one day. So, I, Jeff, you and I both had a chance to dig into this. And I think I'm about two or three chapters in. I think you're roughly the same. I got to tell you, I'm really enjoying this book so far. I wanted to read what he has on the back cover, just a little uh, summary of what this is about. In the spring of 1912, so 1912, Jeff, Greg Good was what, about 30 in 1912? Uh, I think he had uh, started his first career. He was a little early for the cable industry, I will say that, though. <laughs> yeah, he was, absolutely. Uh, he was an assistant for Thomas Edison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. In the spring of 1912, weeks after the Titanic sunk, Ty Cobb climbed into the stands of New York's Hilltop Park and nearly beat to death a crippled fan who called him the N-word. After American League president Van Johnson suspended Cobb, his Detroit Tiger teammates went on to strike to support him. Forced to field the team or else, Tiger manager Huey Jennings went to the streets of Philly to field the team. The one-day ringers were dismissed as losers, but they were also the luckiest guys to ever be major leaguers. The Paper Tigers by Greg Klein tells the previously untold story of the one-day pro baseball players and the baseball legends that caused the tale to transpire. If that doesn't hook you right there, and, and Jeff, you're a huge baseball fan. Me, I'm nowhere near the level of you or Sweet Lou. I'm hooked. I'm hooked just by reading that, which is why I've dug into this book. Well, uh, Ty Cobb, no question about it, Barry, might be one of the five greatest players in the history of the game, okay? Uh, that being said, he might be also one of the five biggest assholes ever to play the game. Having nothing to do with his racism, he was a guy that was notorious uh, on the base pass. That was back when, by the way, they wore steel cleats. And was notorious for, uh, yeah, let's just say, uh, gigging the third baseman when he was sliding into third, that kind of thing. 
but a magnificent hitter, a hitter, the Georgia peach, they called him. Actually, not too far down the road from where I live in Georgia, but uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous player, but a guy that certainly had a, uh, ooh, a dark side, not of baseball or uh, of the ring, but of baseball. His, his teammates, it's actually kind of amazing that they struck on his behalf because generally speaking, while they loved his ability as a baseball player, he was kind of almost universally disliked. Yeah. So it, again, I, you know, what I know about baseball compared to you, I, I fully accept the number two position in that. So <laughs> exactly. So I, I have to defer to your better knowledge, but I'll tell you what, digging into this book and I got to tell you, I really like his writing style too. That's a big thing for me. He's writing and Jeff, you said this to me, oh, 35 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. And you I remember it like it was yesterday. Please. Well, you do. I don't. But it's, it's amazing what I remember and what I don't remember. But you, we were talking about writing and authors and your words to me were, I always felt and I think you were taught this when you're writing, you should be able to hear the author's voice. In, in essence, don't write in any other style than the way that you would project when you're speaking. And that always resonated with me because what I like about Greg's book is I, I get the feeling like there's a guy having a conversation with me. You know, the book is so well written and it's so unpretentious, even though it's dropping knowledge left and right. I just think it's just one of the best books that I've read in quite a while. You can get this book by contacting Greg directly. Uh, we do have his PayPal address. It is $30. You will get an autographed signed copy shipped to you. For only 30 bucks, his PayPal address is JJ Havoc. That's JJHAVOK at AOL.com. So, first thing, Jeff, here's I'm somebody. I'm glad else. I'm not the only one that has I was going to say somebody else with an <laughs> AOL address. Greg, we do have to bust on you for that, but no doubt you've had this for probably 30 years, much like Jeff has. But uh, I, this is highly recommended. And what I love about our group is that, you know, they support, they support our, our people. If somebody is advertising with us, people will go ahead. They will order this book. We love that fact. So we encourage everybody, get a copy of this book. Jeff and I will continue to read this over the next couple of weeks and bring you updates with it. But I'm hooked, Jeff. And what's interesting, too, and I, I spoke with Greg briefly about this today. Do you remember a guy from 30 years ago that did a sheet called The Wrestling Flyer? His name was John Clark. Yeah, it's the guy that didn't he also do the wrestling tapes? I think like he, yes, he did. He yeah. did. He, he did tapes and then he did another sheet, but he was a young kid, this guy. He was from Philadelphia or the suburbs, and he was a young kid at the time, 15, 16, 17 years old, but a Philly guy. Well, it turns out now he's not doing sheets anymore. He's a sports broadcaster on one of the three big locals in Philadelphia. So here's a guy that really, you know, went from sheets to being a, a sports broadcaster on one of the local stations. So we are going to try to get him a copy of this book and see if he can also do something being that it's set in Philadelphia and John Clark was an old wrestling fan. But again, we encourage everybody. We'll be putting a link to this in our Facebook group. And Jeff, what do I say all the time? Uh, what do you say all the time? Well, exactly. <laughs> what do I say that makes any sense? I, I had Ethiopian. I say, uh... <laughs> I, exactly. Uh Oh, there you go. I always say, if you're not a member of the Facebook group, why I mean, not? Why, why aren't not? You? What, what are you doing if you're not? There's no reason, but it's an extension of this podcast. Join our Facebook group. There will be a link to being able to order the Paper Tigers 
And uh, I, yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that he chose to advertise with us. Yeah, and I will say one of the things that I discussed with Barry before we started recording is when I began reading the book, uh, you know, and, and of course it's a, it's a baseball book. The first two chapters of the book, I found myself going, the fuck is this? I thought this was a baseball book. I mean, not that it was not good or entertaining or interesting. It was just the first two chapters of the book, spoiler alert, lead you in a direction that you don't think you're going to go. Because <laughs> I was, it had nothing to do with baseball. And then like all of a sudden you turn the page and you go to the third chapter and they start talking about Ty Cobb and you're like, aha, okay, now I understand where we're going here. So yes, we will post a link to this. Uh, we appreciate Greg for being a sponsor of this uh, fine Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast. On that note, Barry, are you about ready for the old go home, my friend? This was a fun show, Jeff. I don't know. I think I could go for another hour or two. Well, that's not what you usually say. You're that usually saying, uh, <laughs> uh, I got 12 minutes to watch a match. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway, yeah. on behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman, and my co-host, Barry Rose, uh, still reading the book, proud to be a native uh, for now, of the Philadelphia area. I am Jeff Bowden. They call me the Booker. We are a production, almost forgot, of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, take it on, Luke.